Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm Ben Rather, and on behalf of the Texas Tribune, and particularly my friend Evan Smith, who was the founder of the Texas Tribune, responsible for our being here this afternoon, I'm happy to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to one-on-one -on -one with Michael Williams. Now, this event is scheduled to last about one hour. Uh, it will include 15 to 20 minutes of question and answer. Uh, the commissioner and I will speak for maybe 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions. Uh, there will be a microphone in the audience, but that, as you see, we have microphones in the middle aisle here. Uh, please remember to silence your cell phones. This is a good time to silence your cell phones, please. And for those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TT, that's T for Tom, T for Tom, F for Frank, TTF. If for those of you who want to tweet, that's the hashtag. And I want you again to please turn off your cell phones. Now, we're about to start our program, but I hope that you will give me an indulgence and allow me to introduce my grandson, Martin Rather, who is here this afternoon. Martin is the director of the Rather Prize, which is a $10,000 prize offered for the most innovative new idea to improve Texas schools. If there's anything you want to know about that, and I encourage you to look it up, if you go to ratherprize.org, that's ratherprize.org, or uh, on Twitter, it's at, at the Rather Prize. Now, we're really honored, and I use that word majorly, honored to have with us this afternoon uh, Michael Williams. As many of you may know, he was appointed Commissioner of Education in 2012 by then Texas Governor Rick Perry. Uh, he heads the Texas Education Agency, which oversees pre-kindergarten through high school education in both traditional public schools and charter schools. He previously served as a Texas Railroad Commissioner, an elected position elected by the people of Texas, and he also served uh, as a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, I'm not going to read you his whole resume, but this is one of the most accomplished public servants of our time in Texas. Uh, as Texas Commissioner of Education, Michael Williams uh, has had this long history before he got there. President Bush named Commissioner Williams the Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, he led the charge to establish much of the policies still in effect today, increasing government resources for in investigating and addressing issues such as the over-representation of minority males in special education. He championed the underrepresentation of females in advanced placement courses, championed efforts to remedy that. Uh, he also was very much engaged in trying to reduce, if not eliminate, racial harassment on college campuses and the treatment of limited English proficient students. In 1998, Governor George W. Bush appointed Mr. Williams to an unexpired term on the Railroad Commission of Texas, the oldest regulatory body <coughs> in this state. Did you know that the Railroad Commission is the oldest regulatory body uh, in the state? Uh, the three-member commission oversees oil and gas regulation. Texan subsequently elected him to be Railroad Commissioner in 2000 and 2002 and 2008. He may be one of the few people who walks our good Texas earth who was elected to three successive terms in office. No small accomplishment. He became the first person of African-American heritage in Texas history elected to a position in the executive branch of the Texas government. Uh, because Mr. Williams is known as a calm leader during a crisis, Governor Perry selected him as his designee in 2005 to lead our state's long-term relief efforts following Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Commissioner Williams also initiated the Texas response to the tragedy in Darfur. He is a past honorary state chairman of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Texas. He chaired the Texas Juvenile Probation Commission. So I think uh, with your indulgence, we should give a standing ovation to one of the great public servants in Texas in our lifetimes. Lincoln. Well, Commissioner, uh, 
I suspect that you know what Abe Lincoln said about generous introductions. Honest Abe said, never take time to deny it. The audience will find out the truth soon enough for themselves. And so it will be with you here this afternoon. It is a pleasure. Welcome back home. It, it Thank is you very much. Uh, tell me about your upbringing. Uh, were you a good student? I, I probably, I think I was. Uh, but I was blessed in the sense that my parents are educators. My dad taught for 43 years. He was also a football coach and was in the Texas High School Coaches Hall of Fame. Very my dangerous mother, position. Yes. My mother was in education for 40 years and 35 of that was as a uh, counselor. And uh, my mother used to practice giving the tests that the kids would take with, on my sister and I. And, uh, but it's interesting, my parents were public school teachers and I went to Catholic school from K through eight and then in Midland and then to a Catholic boarding school in ninth grade. We desegged in 68, then I came back home and went to Robbie Lee High School, public school in Indiana. Was there any particular teacher or particular teachers that had a, a strong influence on you? I think there were at least three. Sister Bernadette, Sister Leonard Dean, and Mr. Bradford. Mr. Bradford was uh, African-American, was my government teacher in high school, and uh, the history of Western thought. He taught both of those courses. And he was the person who confirmed what I thought I knew when I was young, that I wanted to be a lawyer. And he just sort of helped me truly appreciate that that's really what I wanted to do. Now, can you relate that to your present position? Does that influence in what you say to teachers, principals, administrators, legislators, and others today? Well, I think in one very real way it does. I, we know we have some excellent teachers of that 400,000 educators we have in Texas. Uh, we know, and, and I know that from my own history because I saw two of them every day. And I saw how hard they worked. I saw how committed they were to their students. I saw the kids come back when they got off to college, go off to work to thank them for how mom and dad had poured into their, their, uh, their lives. So in that sense, I came into the position with a strong appreciation for educators. And I, I also came in understanding that we've got to give them a whole lot more support and assistance than what we presently do. I'll move back. You said both of your parents were teachers. What were their specialties? Mathematics? Yeah, Dad, Dad taught algebra and geometry. Mom was a reading specialist early, early on and then became a counselor. Now, one example that they said that uh, made the biggest impact on you. Obviously, you came from what used to be called a nuclear family strong family, strong parents, parents who believe in education and school. But again, what I'll ask you to pick out one single thing that you think from them that impacted you the most. Reading. My mother required that I read books through the summer and she required that I wrote a book report on the book that I read during the summer. And so I grew up, I think, with a pretty strong appreciation for reading and how, how it can impact one's life whether you're reading, I love biographies, because I learned learning about other folks. And so I, you know, I have a whole huge shelf of just full biographies, but people read for a lot of other reasons too. Do you recall one book that made a particularly big impression on you at a young age? Uh, not a particular one. Um, you know, we went through the entire series of whether it was Peter Pan or all of those, you know, those kinds, but, um, not a, not a particular one. I read so many. Did you tend to read biographies more than anything else? When I got older, I did. Mm -hmm. I read sort of action books when I was younger, or books about athletics and stuff. You know, things. But I, I got into the biography genre when I got older. Well, you have such, by any reasonable analysis, such an outstanding record of public service. What made you first want to go into public service? Well, I'm, I'm 62 years of age. I came through what I called sort of the embryonic stages of the Black Power Movement, uh, the maturation of the Civil Rights Movement. And as you know, during that period of time, most of, I mean, that was sort of the thrust, the thinking thrust of all of us. So we're talking about the period, what, late 60s, early late 70s? Late 60s. Yeah, I graduated from high school in 71. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's at the height of the Vietnam War. And, uh, so I wanted to be part of that movement that part of that movement that was engaging to try to help people and try to change this, to change this country and change this world. You graduated from high school in 1971. Was the influence of Martin Luther King 
greater than that of Malcolm X, or you mentioned the Black Power Movement, or was the influence of Mac Malcolm X by that time, which was in the ascendancy in the early 70s? I am, again, I think because of my age at the time, everybody was quite appreciative of the work that Dr. King had done, but there were moments when the, um, there was a sense that we thought we were gonna be more like Malcolm than we were gonna be like Martin. Uh, but I recall having a picture of both of them on my wall in my, in my bedroom, but there was no doubt that on the, on the campus of the University of Southern California, if you ask black students, which one did, would they follow more? It was probably more um, Malcolm than it was Dr. King. Well, that's the reason I asked the question, because at that time, not that Dr. King's tremendous legacy, which resonates with this day, was ended by any measure, but the Malcolm X wing of the movement, if you can call it that, was definitely on the rise, <coughs> beginning, if not to dominate, certainly to have uh, its greatest influence during well, that period. And, and, for, and for young, young adults, for young African-Americans. Right. Well, uh, you were the first person of African-American history uh, his, in, in, uh, in Texas history elected to a position in the executive sector of Texas government, trailblazing by anybody's measurement. Have you always thought of yourself as a trailblazer? No, I thought of myself as being blessed. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, obviously that, that opportunity was initially given to me when I was appointed and then I had to run for re-election. Uh, I've taken on the responsibility, I think at times, that comes with having been the first. But it's been more of my sense that I'd like to see some seconds and some thirds and some fourths. And it's my responsibility to do some work to sort of see if we can have some seconds, thirds, and fourths. Well, regardless of race, color, creed, religion, or gender, <laughs> What do young people learn from your success? Hard work does pay. Relationships matter. Developing an expertise in an area is extremely important. Um, and I think my being committed to something that's bigger than you, I think all of those are sort of ingredients that have been part, you know, I almost feel like we're rounding the bases. I'm not ready to call it a day and <laughs> quit right now, Dan. But, um, but I think all of those are ingredients that have gone into making my life what it is. I do want to deal with what you hope will be your future, some future later on. But right now, uh, in the introduction, I mentioned that you were uh, a prosecutor, you were assistant district attorney, than a federal prosecutor later on. Uh, but you were awarded the Attorney General's Special Achievement Award for the conviction of six Ku Klux Klan members. Case has faded into the mist now, but it was a big front page case at the time. Uh, you prosecuted and won the case despite receiving death threats. Uh, from where does that fearlessness come? Or were you fearless? Well, I mean, there's two parts of that story. I remember when she's now a judge, uh, when Linda Davis, who was my chief, called me into the office to tell me that they had received, that the FBI had received word that there was a legitimate death threat against me. Now, keep in mind, my boss is a woman, and so I'm standing there trying to be tough. Yes, I'll go back down to North Carolina, and I'll try this case, and my knees are just shaking. Um, so let's just say sometimes we do things that appear courageous because we're not smart enough not to do them. Uh, but I've always had sort of an independent streak. Uh, and I think part of that comes from when I went to boarding school, my parents, I was 13 years old. My parents put me on a bus by myself. They gave me a map of the, of the route from Midland to Canyon City, Colorado. They took out a marks a lot and went across the route of the map, put circles on certain cities where the bus would stop, put X's on them, gave me rolls of quarters, said call your grandmother when you get to the X's. You can't send a 13-year-old kid 600 miles from, from home by himself on a bus and not do something to instill a tad bit of independence and courage in that kid. Another question, it's the rare person who considers himself completely fearless. To some young people who may hear this or may hear about it, Give them a piece of counsel, wise counsel, based on your experience, of how to deal when those moments in life 
whether they're personal, school-related, or professional, where a voice tells you inside, be afraid, be very afraid. Well, that's going to happen often. It's not whether you hear the voice that says, be afraid. It's whether you also recognize the one that says, you've got a support system back here. You've got a belief system that says that you can persist. Uh, and you've got resources, or you can develop resources that allow you to prevail. It's not that the voice doesn't come into you and say, be afraid. That, that's going to happen. Uh, that happened when I came in here with you. <laughs> but but, but that, that, that's not the thing that, 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 that uh, is the most significant. I think it's the other pieces. I appreciate your praise, but it's not going to make the questions easier. <laughs> it's not going to make the you questions You got to let me try. <laughs> well, of, of your achievements, which one has the most significance for you? I think it's the case that you just mentioned. And as we mentioned in the green room, as a prosecutor of the U.S. Department of Justice in the Criminal Section Civil Rights Division, you were on the side of the angels. You're prosecuting white supremacists and Klansmen and bad cops, and you're protecting people that cannot protect themselves in any way. And you're getting justice and sometimes mercy for them. There's no doubt that the position that I'm leaving has given me an enormous amount of joy. Uh, but when I think about the entire breadth of the career thus far, um, stepping off that plane in six different cities in North Carolina and trying six different cases, um, that, was, that was significant. And doing so when you knew what the personal risk was and hearing that jury come back and say guilty. By the way, was the jury of uh, mixed racial heritage or was it all white? No, there were, if I recall, remember, and there were several trials. Right, I understand you. Uh, but in the, big, but in the big one, which would have been in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, um, if I recall, right, there were probably three African Americans and the balance of the, the, the jury was, was white. All right, that you consider to be your most significant is that or something else the most challenging thing you've done in your life? No, this, what I'm leaving today is the most challenging <laughs> uh, that, that, that I've done. And I think it's in large part because there are so many different stakeholders who have uh, a desire to participate because we have 8,600 campuses in the state and 1,200 school districts and 5.2 million kids because every community has a school. I was joking with people, and some of them have heard the story. When I became uh, education commissioner, Governor Perry didn't do one of those stand next to him. He just did a press release. So I left my home in Arlington. I wanted to be in the city somewhere. And people started calling me at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's going to be you. It's going to be you. Who's it going to be? The next week when I started, I did the same thing. And people started calling me, don't do this, you better do that. <laughs> and that, sat, that Sunday, the Cowboys had a preseason football game. And I got three telephone calls in the middle of the football game to tell me to do something or ask me a question. And it struck me I'd never received a call during a football game in 12 years as a statewide elected official. Wind farm, solar panel, but everybody's got a kid. And so this, there, there's more concern and interest about what we do at TEA than anything else I've ever done. Well, I'm keeping in mind your, your past experience, prosecutor, member of the Railroad Commission, leader of those relief efforts following Katrina and Rita. How has that helped you in this current job as education commissioner? I think, to some extent, I got some substantive background when I was assistant secretary. But I think all of them have led to me developing a management style that allows me to lead a large, complex, complicated agency. You've been kind enough not to ask one of the, what some people thought was one of the biggest problems or mistakes I ever made, and that related to the minority scholarship issue when I was assistant secretary. And what I learned from that that has helped me in this is that large public policy changes, you need to sell the problem before you try to sell to the solution. With large public policy changes, you need to have an enormous amount of collaboration with people. 
And before you announce it, you need to let people know about it in advance so they can have an opportunity to come in. That shape, that experience shaped my thinking about how you manage conflict and problems in an agency. Well, let me follow up on that in two areas. First, what is your management style? I'd like to think that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leader, but I'm a collaborator. Um, I would like to think that our, our staff says that I have given them what I believe are the commissioner's priorities. And I tell the senior staff, let's go do it. They will repeat to you that I say, while, while we may be a regulatory agency, an enforcement agency, let's try to get the yes. Let's try to get the yes. Now, there'll be times when we have to say no, but let's try to get the yes. Uh, there are, I think they will tell you that um, we try to have metrics for what we do, so we know if we got there or not. And that's the way we try to manage it in the building. One of the things that I'm most proud of at the agency today, and there are a lot of things I think are doing going well, is I think we've improved the morale in the building. Because this was a battered and beaten agency when I got there in 2012. I'd gone from 1,200 employees down to six, it's making its way back up. And just doing little things, whether it's merit pay, whether it's uh, I send birthday cards to every employee on their birthday. We have brown bag lunches with every month with just the regular staff, not the senior staff. And so it's the little, I'm a floor walker. It's just the little things that I think have helped. So that's part of the style. Now the question you anticipated. What has been the biggest problem? The biggest challenge we have and the biggest opportunity we have is the redesign, I guess, in two areas. Providing greater support for educators in the classroom. Training when they're in ed schools, and then professional development training once they get in the classroom, and then even greater support uh, while they're there. And in addition to that, because it's the agency's responsibility, it's design a fair and rational accountability system so that we can rate our campuses and districts. <laughs> well, you head the Texas Education Commission, oversees education of what, more than five million pre-kindergarten through high schools. That's a lot of responsibility. And I'd like for you to talk to us a bit about what is it that you do on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis? We may have a picture of what the commission as a whole does, but what does your day look like? Well, they're all different. At the moment, we're in the middle of looking at the appeals of campuses and districts from their ratings. And so I will be going through this coming week looking at the recommendations from the panels. And then for some districts and some campuses, they're coming in to make their case to me why I ought not do Forgive my ignorance, but this is a school district or a school gets a rating and they appeal it, say, listen, this is too low. Correct. Right. Correct. And it's mostly, now there's some who think it should be a little higher, but either way, it wasn't that they were substandard. Right. So this week is going to be filled with things such as that. It is going to be the individual ratings of the campus and district, and it's going to be presiding over the appeals. And there is no more difficult, wretched decision for a commissioner to make than to close a school or to close a district, or to remove a district's elected board of, board of trustees. And I've done all three, and uh, those are tough, tough decisions. Well, what is the hardest single decision you've had to make? The closure of North Force. Um, school district. It's a district of 7,200 students, predominantly African American. Based upon our rating system and the one that preceded me, um, was the lowest performing school district in the state. And as you might imagine, there was an enormous amount of political pressure uh, from individuals to not close the district and particularly not close a district that was predominantly African-American. But it was my sense that those students were not well served in that district, and you just have to make a decision and let the tips fall they do. I'm not going to apologize for the question, but I'm going to remind you that I'm, I'm a journalist, and we subscribe to the creed, there are no bad questions, there are only bad answers. 
<laughs> How many times, if indeed it's ever happened, have you been accused of being, quote, an Uncle Tom because you're a person of African-American heritage in a very responsible position, but in a predominantly white executive branch? When I was younger, quite a, quite a bit. As I've gotten older, and I think I have a history of experience, I think there are individuals who now say that's just Michael, and he just has a different worldview. I mean, when I first came here, a state senator who he and I become good friends, African-American, took me out to dinner, and he wanted to basically interview me. <laughs> he said, okay, you're against affirmative action, you know, you, you're a Republican, you call yourself a conservative, I don't, I don't understand you. And now we become, when I was younger, they found ways to work together on, on, on a variety of issues. But it used to happen when I was younger. It doesn't happen today. At least they don't say it to me. Did he raise the names Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, saying you, when you younger days, you were on, quote, our side. Now you're on the other side. He, he did not. It, it was interesting at the first Legislative Black Caucus dinner that I went to, which was later that year in 2012, a congresswoman went to the mic and gave me a lecture in front of five, six hundred people about my obligation and responsibility. Um, I think I fully understood and understand my obligation, but uh, she felt it was appropriate for her to give me such a lecture. And she and I had some issues on the North Force piece, and I think it was, she never went in that direction. She, she never went there. She never she went, went that went far. Yeah, she, she never went there. Well, I asked you what the biggest problem was, toughest decision. Uh, what's the most rewarding experience you've had in this job? Going into schools that were, that were having trouble and seeing that they've turned around. Um, we, we were visiting, the gentleman here and I were visiting about a school here in Austin that was on our closure list. and. I asked them to come up with a plan as to how they were going to turn it around and convince me that I should not turn it around. And they did so. I allowed the school to remain open. And this year, on a campus, you can get seven distinctions. That means you compared to 40 other school districts with demographics like yours, you were in the top 25%. And that school district, that school that was scheduled to be closed, won four of those seven. And I went by to visit them and congratulate them, and that was a very, very proud moment. You know, the late uh, former President Lyndon Johnson had a wonderful phrase, with the bark off. With the bark off, and keeping in mind you're now at the end of this time uh, as commissioner. Give us a, your assessment of the tech educational system. Not, not the politically correct one, mm -hmm. not the one, you know, maybe you've had to make speeches about, but looking back, Give us a bark off assessment. We're doing well, but we have a long, long way to go. And we have a challenge that I don't think most Texans recognize. Because most Texans think that their classrooms across Texas look like the one that they were in. And I'm talking about adults, I'm not talking about. And so you were probably in a school that was at least 80% white. More than uh, that. More than that. I was in, I know I, I was in schools with 80% white. But our classrooms today, 65% of our students are brown and black, and 60% are poor. So that's a very different, so part of what we need to do is make sure that policymakers, business leaders, community leaders, moms, dads, whatever, understand the unique challenge that we have in Texas. Now, having taken that demographic into account, we do quite well, but we have a long way to go. I mean, we've got the highest graduation rate we've ever had, uh, and it's, Number one or two, depending upon which subgroup you look at. Our SAT scores and, a and ACT scores are on the rise. Um, but we can't be satisfied because our black kids outperform black kids in other states and our Hispanic kids outperform Hispanic kids in other states because our kids have to outperform white kids in Massachusetts and kids in Beijing. And so we've got a long, long way to go. Well, the last time I looked, that Texas, by the best, most popular measurement, ranked no better than 38th or 39th 
of the 50 states. In front. And then was 47th in SAT scores. Now, as one who believes, as a native Texan who believes that God did not put any Texan on earth to be 39th or 47th at anything, has this been frustrating for you when reporters such as myself point this out? But see, when you take into account our demographics, First of all, it's not 47, but anyway, <laughs> and it is somewhere around 38, 39th in terms of per capita funding. But despite that, look at what we've been able to do with graduation rates and increasing ACT scores and SAT. I meet with the folks at the ACT and SAT annually as they give us the Texas profile. And you see significant increases, particularly over the last 15 years. Now, it's mindful, we have to be mindful that 15 years ago we were so low that, we had, you know, that there was a lot of room for improvement, and, but we're making that kind of improvement. So what I prefer to do is to compare us to other states with similar challenges. Well, what do you see as the biggest threat going forward, the biggest threat to education in the state? Not just public education, but education. What's the biggest threat? The teacher corps. We have shortages in probably every school district in the state. We have discipline shortages, particularly with bilingual and ELL teachers. But we also have shortages in terms of math and science. We have yet to find a way, and there is no magic bullet, to get young folks to want to be in classrooms and get current teachers to want to stay in classrooms. And so to me, the biggest is expanding the pool of teachers then getting them the training that they need so they can give instruction, giving them the support, so like a career ladder within the classroom, so you don't have to leave the classroom to go be an administrator so you can take your kids to vacation in the summer. I read something the other day uh, that there was an initiative in Los Angeles to give an iPad to every student in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Would something like that ever be considered in Texas? Probably not by the state. I mean, the state's uh, process thus far has been that we've increased the instructional uh, materials allotment, and we allow districts to make a decision how they want to use that money. You want to use old-fashioned books, you want to use the technology, you want to blend it. Um, and so the, the, the challenge has been to put enough money and let you, let all 1,200 districts, make that decision themselves. And even within some of the districts, Campus is going to do it differently. So we've, we've chosen to allow districts to do that. Do you agree with that? That's a decision by consensus over the state. State government is, through their elected officials, has agreed that. Do you personally agree with that? Or would it be better to say, listen, we're in the second decade of the 21st century, and any child in any school who doesn't have at least an iPad starts at a tremendous disadvantage. You cannot teach these children where you and I were taught. And we should be utilizing technology much more, in a much stronger way than we currently do. It allows us to tailor learning. It allows it to, to personalize the learning. It allows the kid to have access to learning 24-7, 365. And so whether it is a bring your own you know, device to school or whether it is an iPad that is bought for the student or whether it's just like one of the school districts that I visited in North Texas where in one of the schools they just have iPads just stacked up in the library and at the end of the day I'm a kid, I go by and I grab my iPad and I go home. And as the communities building hotspots around so that one has access to the internet even though they may not, they may not have gotten it from Time Warner Cable with somebody else, but they have because the community has said we want everybody to have access. So there are a lot of different ways to do it, but there's no doubt moving to a greater sense of digital learning I think makes sense. At the primary school level, what do you see the role of technology? Or do you think it should have a heavy role? I, you know, I think there's a role everywhere. I just bought an online, um, online kit for learning for... Um, a two-and-a-half-month-old niece uh, and did a similar one. They, they do that several old niece. So, and these kids are learning faster. They, they do that stuff faster than we can. Okay. So uh, we, we should be. I mean, we should be. I think the question isn't, there's all kinds of learning. There's still going to have to be an adult. 
there's still going to be someone providing instruction. Um, and so, and we still have to train teachers how to provide instruction using that newfangled device because we all heard the stories of the school district with the campus that went out and bought devices and they're sitting in a storage room somewhere because nobody's been taught how to use it. Well, that in part addresses your question earlier about the problem of getting qualified teachers, enough qualified, trained teachers. Well, that is a challenge. I mean, that is a challenge. I mean, my mother, as I think we visited, has a bachelor's and a master's degree in math. She became a teacher. Today, that African-American female, she's going to be an engineer. She's going to be a doctor. She's going to be something else. And so, and part of it is compensation, but it's not simply compensation. I don't think we have to pay baby teachers what we currently pay baby lawyers in this country. But it's going to be helpful for us to be able to invest more financially in our teaching core than we currently do. And now we've got to give them other kinds of support while they're there. Well, first of all, give me your definition of common core. It's one of those phrases um, that around. We don't have common core in Texas. <laughs> Do not get me in that mess. <laughs> Do not get, we, man, that, that'll, get, that'll get me run out of here before December 31st. Um, here's what we did. We in Texas, we were the first state in the country to develop its own curriculum standards. And then, and that's what Common Core is supposed to be, a set of curriculum standards, common to those 40-some-odd states that joined. And so we didn't join Common Core because we said, we already have our own curriculum standards. We don't need to work out some arrangements with the rest of the folks. And we were the first state in the country to develop an assessment system aligned to our curriculum standards and the first to develop an accountability system aligned to the assessment. But the question was your definition of what is Common Core. I take your point. Okay. You, you requested we not go all into that mangrove swamp. All it is is a, a uniform body of curriculum standards. What do, we want kids, what do we want kids to know in reading and math in, in, in each grade? What do we want them to know? Yeah, that's, I mean, and that's what our curriculum standards are. With that as your definition, why is it so controversial? The national part of it is that some people believe or choose to believe that the national government told those 42 states to do that. Those governors raised their hand and said, let's get together. We want to move in this direction of raising the standards and do them in a uniform way so that we know in Texas that the kid in Big Springs is learning the same thing as the kid in Beaumont is learning the same right. kids in Balmeray. But some, some people believe or choose to believe that the national government told them to do it. And obviously, we have a strong sense of federalism in this country, and so that would be offensive to folks. There's certain kinds of things that there may be a lesson plan here and there that is somewhat offensive to one, and so that is a, Common Core gets caught into that, into that bucket. Or there may be um, a different way of teaching, let's say, for instance, math, than the way you and I learned math, and so one thinks that we should go back to the old, the old school way of doing it. And I think that's in part some of what all of the, the ruckus is about. Well, uh, I read recently an article that said that the SAT, ACT, and AP exams are being brought into alignment with Common Core. Now, since the Texas standards are different, could Texas students be at a disadvantage when taking those tests, or you think not? I don't really think so, because at the end of the day, George Washington was the first president of the United States, and you can't change that. I don't care whether you call it Common Core or Texas Teaks. Uh, at the end of the day, two plus two still would be four. And so I think if, if we do, and we believe our standards are higher than the Common Core standards. I realize there's a debate in Texas as to whether that is indeed the case or not, but we believe that they are. And so I don't see our students being disadvantaged as long as we continue to raise the standard and maintain accountability. We were the first state in the country to do it. Well, for those, and there are those, I'm not suggesting majority, but for those, particularly those in powerful, decisive positions who would say, okay, I don't even argue with George Washington, but 
Martin Luther King shouldn't be in the textbooks. What, how do you answer that when you say, well, if you had common core, that would have been decided. But Texas being independent, mm -hmm. uh, there are some, some of those decisions that have been made. Well, that, that is a, that is, that's about what you are exposing youngsters to. I, don't, I still think we're going to be, I have a great deal of confidence that through our State Board of Education and through the agency, we're going to always demand high performance and high skills, but that to me would be, but I don't see that as going to be a threat though. You don't, see it, you don't see it as a core problem. Mm -hmm. Well, you recently announced that Texas will increase the passage difficulty of its own required tests uh, this year after repeatedly delaying the move due to poor student performance. That's fair to say, is it not? Well, why now? And what happens if this experiment fails? Well, what was always contemplated is that we would do a stair step in raising the passing standard. And we would be at phase one, which is where we are right now. And we'd be there like two years, go to phase two for two years, go to phase three for two years, and go to final and be there and be at final by school year 2021, 2022. I have held it at phase one for four years because it, this system needs time to ratchet up. And it, it had not done so. And so now we're going to raise them, but we're going to raise them just rather than go from, I think it was 1.7 deviation, go from phase one to phase two, which meant a kid, as a practical matter, had to get somewhere between four and eight questions correct, more than what they do in phase one. Now we're going to ratchet up just in small bit pieces, and maybe it's one or two questions. What happens if, um, if it causes too much pain? then I suspect there will be people, perhaps some in this room, that will go to the 181, the legislature in 2017 or 2019, and argue that it ought to be changed. Uh, but, and that's what happens in the political system. Tell me what your own personal feelings are. Obviously, you have to deal with the collective decision, but your own personal feelings about no child left behind. Well, the interesting thing, it started here. <laughs> All of the elements, for the most part, of No Child Left Behind started here. But because it started here, I think we have a unique um, viewpoint. I don't particularly think that national government needs to be involved in my educational system. You know, the pieces of No Child Left Behind are the big ones. Don't go back to 1995 with then-Governor George W. Bush. And so, um, let us run Texas. And we can run it fairly well. And maybe we, if we start failing, you might want to put some restrictions on us. But let us, let us run taxes. Now let me come to the future. You're at the end of this tenure as commissioner. But uh, you admonished me earlier, saying, listen, I'm not through yet, said you. You've got a lot of rivers to cross. What are your immediate plans and what are you interested in doing sort of medium to long term? I haven't thought much about it, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't want to be thinking about my next gig, if you will, while I was getting paid by the taxpayers for this one. But I will begin doing so. When I leave in December, um, I plan on doing absolutely nothing for a while. Not a thing. Uh, I'm, I hope to play some bad golf for a couple of months and uh, listen to a lot of music. And there's this part of me that says I've been there about public service for about 30 years, and I may want to go out and make a scotch distillery or, or a brewery or something, and, or, or uh, sell teas and spices. Uh, this is Texas, herbs. better be a bourbon. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and do something that doesn't really directly relate to public service. But, you know, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it. I really haven't. Um, it will give me time to spend, I talk to my parents almost every day. And dad's 90 and mom's 87. But it gave me time to spend physical time with that. We're going to move to questions and answers to the audience. So I, I, was, I neglected to ask you, now as the Indians, as you used to call them now, the Native Americans say, from time to time you should stand up in your stirrups, look back over the trails that you have traveled. What's your biggest regret as commissioner now that you're ready to leave?
we didn't build a strong enough succession system within the agency. I think the agency would be fine, but we weren't diligent enough in building that system. And I think we wholly failed, not wholly, but partially, failed to make the strong, consistent case as to why testing is important. I believe tests are important. And that is a very dynamic conversation in this day. said that. And I could have done a better job of that. Well, having said that, to those who say, listen, don't teach to the test, teach to the student, you say what? If you teach to the test, your kids are going to fail. You've got to teach to the standard, to the curriculum standard, and be all right. People say all the time, and I'll say this now, some of these folks have heard me do this, and they'll be upset, but um, this whole notion about teaching to the test, you could do that when we were testing at the bottom rung of what's called Bloom's Taxonomy. You were just asking kids to remember and shoot it back to you. We are now testing to see if you can contrast and compare and analyze and synthesize. If you don't teach them how to do that, they aren't going to do well. So if you're really teaching to the test, your kids aren't going to perform well. And you know, we have this thing in Texas every Friday night called a test, and it's called a football game. Nobody worries about that test. Nobody's passing out on that test. Because great coaches teach you how to block and tackle, throw and run. And so you can't, you can't, I mean, so you can't really teach to the test in today's environment. That's, just a, that's an old canard. By the way, Ross Perot back in, I think it was the 1990s, said by any reasonable analysis, we emphasize athletics and things attached to athletics, such as band practice, cheerleading, and so forth, uh, to the detriment of teaching the really important things in school. Now, here we are in 2015. Anything to that? Well, I'm a son of a football coach. You, you gotta have football. I mean, you just have to have football. But you know, I think we have to provide kids with all kinds of experiences. I mean, it's important for, for kids to, to learn math and science and social studies and English, reading and writing, but also be in the band and on the track team and, and be in drama and so, we need to be providing kids with all kinds of opportunities. And one of the things our legislature did in the two sessions ago is to move from uh, sort of a one-size-fits-all graduation plan to now let our high schools, beginning when they're in eighth grade, as a matter of fact, to identify career paths uh, that they like, they think they might want to be in. So I can get some more fine arts classes or some career tech classes or, you know, so I think our legislature did a, 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 an interesting thing in trying to provide kids with more opportunities. We're going to open it up to questions now for about the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. There are two microphones at the center aisle. I will ask you to speak right into the microphone and speak up. Uh, there's no joy in saying this, but I lost some of my hearing long ago and far away in Vietnam, and age has also taken its toll. So if you could speak up nice and loudly and right into the microphone, I'd appreciate it. Sure. My name is Carl Settles. Um, I run a nonprofit that works with creative youth of color here in Austin. Um, I guess for me, the elephant in the room is poverty. It seems that the biggest indicator for educational success is affluence. And if you look at the, the schools where the kids are, are failing uh, the most, it's also where kids are the poorest. And so unless you, could, you have an educational solution that's coupled with an economic solution, are we really ever going to address the issues that we have in education system? I think there are two parts to, to, to that question. One is to say, let's what we can do as the agency, the institution of TEA. And in the redesign of what I call accountability 2.0 and then going to accountability 3.0, one of the things that you know we've been directed to do is design a rating system that goes A through F. And in doing so, my sense is we should be comparing schools to like-described schools. So similar to the way we do on the distinction side, we do it in the development of A through F. And in addition to that, there may be an overlay. 
of not only are you getting compared to schools with similar ethnic demographics and with similar special needs and similar mobility rates, but how about if there's a way to design that system such it takes into account dollars are available to educate the kid? So I think in the design of that system, we can at least do a better job than we might be doing today of approaching getting an answer like the one that you're talking about. On the other piece, um, and you guys know I'm always uncomfortable about talking about funding because, remember, I'm the defendant in the lawsuit until I leave. I don't want to get us in any trouble. But there's no doubt that there's a recognition among the legislature that they need to, and they're going to, I do believe, provide additional resources to campuses that have larger representative numbers of poor kids. I think there's a recognition there. I think the question of the timing, do you do it before or after the Supremes give us their opinion? Thank you. Next question. Jim Rice, Fort Penn, ISD, and Commissioner, I would just like to say thank you for your service to the state of Texas and our school children. I have two questions for you. One is, uh, you spoke earlier of improved graduation rates and uh, uh, amongst all the student categories. What advice would you give to school board trustees and superintendents on how to uh, better inform portions of our public who seem to ignore that or perhaps are confused by the various ratings that are out there from the federal government, the state, and so forth. And the second question is, uh, can you tell us who your successor will be? <laughs> first of all, let me, let me take that question, the first question, as an opportunity to say that we have to have a different conversation in the state about public ed. For the last two decades, the conversation about public ed has been how bad public education is. And there are a lot of good things that are going on in public ed. So it's incumbent upon me as a commissioner, even as a former commissioner, you as a board member, all of us, to change that conversation and to begin telling, extolling the virtues of what's happening. In terms of the, what I think would be helpful for you and your community, as the agency goes about the business of improving the accountability design, we all have to get out on our, you know, our skates and, and tell folks. I don't believe if it's designed well, and that may be a challenge, that A through F is a bad thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm a supporter. But, but I, I also believe that we can design it well. We can take into account economics. We can take into account mobility. We, we can take all those things into account. So I would have that conversation. Now the last question, that question is directed to the wisdom and judgment of the governor of the state of Texas. I know two things. There is a governor, and I'm not him. <laughs> Next question. Oh. Hi, good afternoon, Commissioner. Uh, Mr. Rather, appreciate you being here very much. Um, I'm Susan Simpson Hall, Superintendent at Grand Prairie ISD. And, Commissioner, you know that I greatly admire you and appreciate the difference that you've made for Texas public school children. Um, I have with me four doctoral students from Dallas Baptist University where I teach the superintendency class and have for about 15 years. Um, and so my question is, what would you say to them? These are future superintendents in Texas. I've been a superintendent for a quarter of a century and have seen many, many changes. And all of the commissioners have been a defendant, by the way. Um, what do they need to look to? I think there really is. Um, for Texas public schools. And I, I'm going to pair it back to something that you have taught me over my three and a half years. They have to be instructional leaders. They, ha they have to be instructional leaders who can empower their campus principals. And so not only in learn about instruction and finance, but more so than that, leadership and management. I mean, that's what I would hope they'll do at DBU and, and, and all across the state, quite frankly. Because the, where we fall, where we're falling down, is when we have schools not just because they have poverty, because we got schools with po high poverty that are doing quite well, but they got strong leaders 
on the campus. So we've got to do a better job of, of developing superintendents and principals, for that matter, so they can be strong leaders. Next question, please. Great. Hi, my name is Chandy Wagner. I'm a student at the LBJ School of Public Affairs studying education policy. Also spent some time at the Department of Education this summer. And so I was curious to hear more information about your thoughts on our probationary waiver um, from the Department of Education. What you think, I read your letter in response to them, so I know that, obviously. Um, but was curious if you could comment anymore on what you think the next steps are. Will we be including test scores within teacher evaluations to meet those demands of the waiver, or are we just going to say we're doing well, we're in the midst of a constant conversation with the department. I have personally visited with Secretary Duncan three times and with Deputy Secretary King three times and now with Assistant Secretary Ann Whalen two times. And let's just talk about where we are. I think I've made it quite clear that while I believe that measuring growth and having it part of an evaluation tool and process is a good thing. Where we disagree with the national government is in two areas. I do not have the authority to require all 1,200 districts to do that. I do not want that authority. I'm not going to seek that authority. The other area where we have a disagreement is in how are you going to measure growth? The national government says that we can only use test scores to measure growth. Susan's shown me that we can use portfolios and you know, ELOs, I mean, all kinds of different ways. So why do you want me to limit the growth measure to simply test scores? On that one, we're not going to budge. And so we may find ourselves come January 15th, because we have a document that we have to send back to the National Government on January 15th. We may find ourselves after January 15th with them saying, you're high risk and we're going to remove your, your, uh, your conditional waiver. Now that won't affect this school year. If it anything, it affects 16, 17. And in the meantime, the Congress can reauthorize elementary secondary education act and we may not have to deal with this issue anyway. <laughs> but we're gonna continue having a conversation through January 15th. This will be the last question and thank you very much for your patience, madam. I know you've been staying there for a long time. No problem, thank you so much for being here. My name is Margaret. If you could work just a little bit closer to the microphone. Uh, I have taught in uh, public and charter schools with primarily low-income student bodies. I uh, recently taught in a school where they eliminated science, they eliminated arts, they eliminated social studies to teach to the test. And I'm seeing in most of my schools that we are teaching and testing almost two dozen times in one quarter. Uh, you said that if... You mean locally? Test, you mean locally on your campus? In with schools within Texas. And you said if schools teach the test, the students are going to fail on the test. But how is that going to prevent schools from meeting this accountability standard because they feel like they'll just be turned over and shut down and, and fired if they don't? How are we going to prevent that from happening? And I felt like for the minority students that I represent, we were having, uh, they were having a limited educational opportunity. We have, the standard. we have to give you more support in knowing how to teach. That's why we have to expand what we do with what we call Project Share, which is our technology platform that allows teachers and students, quite frankly, but mostly teachers, to share how to teach this concept, how to teach that strategy. We have to, I'm thankful, bring back the reading and math academies. It's $100 million to help classroom teachers know better how to teach those, whatever it is that they have to teach. So it goes back to the, to the level of support and assistance that we can and need to provide to your district so they can provide it to you. And you need to build some more of those, like that one over there, superintendents who really are instructional leaders. That's, quite frankly, I think how we, how we do that. But what I don't want us to do is to either move back on the curriculum standards and to move away from an accountability system. That doesn't mean that we can't improve it. Okay, that doesn't mean we can't add features to it. But it really is, in my mind, true. What we measure gets done. And if we're supposed to be moving away from it. I want to thank you all. The Texas Tribune uh, appreciates you being here. The Tribune also invites you to join us for a special courtyard reception. That'll be at the AT&T Conference Center. 
to recap the sessions with your fellow festival attendees. Hors d'oeuvres and a cash bar will be available. That's all there is to it. You are cordially invited. Thank you again for participating in the festival this year. And I think we should give the commissioner another standing ovation. <laughs> Thank you.